I'm Claire. And I'm Emma. Welcome to Rich Text, a podcast about our cultural obsessions from fashion trends to books to the buzziest scripted TV shows. This is a public episode, but if you want access to our back catalog and future subscribers-only podcasts, like our recent episode about Bridgerton, consider becoming a paid subscriber. It's actually been a few months now, Emma, since we've discussed a book, and so we're so thrilled to get literary again this week with an author we have both just loved and admired for years. Heather Haverleski is the author of Foreverland on the Divine Tedium of Marriage, and you may also know her as the writer behind the legendary advice column, Ask Polly. Heather, thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Emma. Hi, Claire. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. It's truly a pleasure. And I want to say also up top, apologies for my voice to everyone listening. I got us a terrible cold from my son this week. And just please bear with me. Um, But we're so excited to have this conversation. We both loved Foreverland. And as two people who are kind of earlier on our journey of long-term partnership, it felt really good to to read something that was so honest and funny about something that's so romanticized in our culture. But I think we wanted to start just by asking you, like, obvious question, why write a book about your marriage? How did you come to that idea? I had read a handful of books about marriages, memoir marriage memoirs. I reviewed a handful for the New York Times, and then I read a few others. And I kept kind of feeling like I couldn't trust the story I was being handed. Now, I do think that that's probably just part of reading someone's first person account about marriage. Like now my vision of this is a little adjusted because I think there's a way that when you meet a couple, no matter what they say about themselves, you will observe things and make your own strange judgment about whether their relationship works or not. So I think books are sort of the same way. But the the books that I had read felt hmm, a little sugar-coated about how marriage feels on the inside. I never felt like I could get the full picture of what a couple was made of, what what did they you know, what were their real arguments about? What were their really lowest moments when they just hit the wall and could not communicate at all? Not that many people write about that. And so because I write Ask Polly, I'm pretty comfortable writing about difficult moments and writing about being a sort of confused slob in the world, just (laughs) muddling through. So I felt like this was sort of my calling to write this book about marriage that could be loving and positive, but also be incredibly negative at times, just like marriage is. I, I sort of thought, if anyone has a good enough marriage, if anyone has a happy marriage, happy enough that you could actually show behind the scenes, it's me and my husband. We're just so great together that what could go wrong? Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, and so that's, uh, we know lots of things that could go wrong now. <laughs> There was a very intense reaction when the book first was being excerpted and covered in the media. The The New York Times excerpt was from a particularly biting and funny and sort of harsh portion of the book. And that obviously became uh, the subject of a lot of conversation. Did that take you by surprise when it happened? A little bit. I was surprised that the New York Times wanted that chapter. And I was a little bit worried about putting out that chapter um, out of context, because it does give you an impression of the book that is a little different than the overall tone of the book. That was 2019, when I was writing about our trip to the Great Barrier Reef. And this stuff about snoring heap of meat, you know, sneezes, (laughs) phlegmy husband, all that stuff. So we're talking about, you know, 13 years into a marriage, the kind of anger that comes up is different than the anger in, that a newlywed experiences. It's sort of more like this again, you know, and also there's also this thing where you're sort of navigating around the other person. Like, how can I, you know, I know I don't want to get rid of this guy, but how can I sort of 
ignore him or put him out of my mind sometimes so I can feel free within my life and within my own domicile. So that was the idea. It's a very specific kind of moment in a marriage. The other thing is, you know, traveling with teenagers is just like when you first have toddlers, you cannot believe your life. Everywhere you go, you've got this loud liability with you. (laughs) This thing could explode and go nuts at any time. And you've got to somehow manage it, but you're, it turns out the worst manager alive. With teenagers, it's similar, but the level of sophistication of the bomb that will go off is much higher. So it's much more personal. It's like, you know, if you hadn't made such bad choices, mom, we wouldn't be in this situation. I thought about this a lot when I was pregnant. I was like, now that I'm pregnant, um, it's occurring to me that one day I'll have a teenager. And I don't know why I didn't think of this before, but that doesn't sound nearly as fun as having a baby. I and it turns out having just, a baby is not super fun either. I so. assume you just have to suspend your disbelief to get through it all. You're for, sort of ready for it when it shows up. A baby is intense because you don't, you just are, feel certain that you're not ready. I never liked babies. I was always like, what, what's the point? Who cares? Why do people love babies so much? And then when I got pregnant, I started to sort of see babies. Like, oh my God, they're really amazing. They're like little animals. But then, you know, you have a baby and you're sort of connected and, you know, ideally thrilled and you are sort of relaxed, hopefully, and you are enjoying that connection. And then you see toddlers when you have a baby and you say, Jesus, they look so dirty. Keep them away from me. Like, (laughs) I don't want one of those. Um, And then you see, I remember hating school age kids like, ugh terrible. They talk constantly. But when you get to that stage with your kid, it's thrilling. You know, you love the fact that they talk all the time. So similarly, teenagers are amazing because, I mean, part of the part of the joy of teenagers these days is they're on TikTok constantly. I mean, mine are because I just let them. Can they teach me? (laughs) Because I need to learn. (laughs) They can teach you things. I mean, they will get you up to speed on a lot of stuff. (laughs) Something that I also wanted to talk about is in that initial wave of reaction to your book what I felt especially you know watching that view segment where your book wasn't even named you weren't even named it felt like there was a lot of anxiety packed into that reaction anxiety about speaking ill at all about the realities of marriage. And it made me think about the way that women especially are so raised on romantic narratives and how often those narratives kind of stop at the initial commitment. And I'm wondering what you think we lose out on by being so resistant to honestly grappling with what comes after. So many things that I think that Part of the struggle of being married is trying to understand how much conflict and how much work is normal because no one tells you how they sort of cobble through the hard parts of living with someone. You go from sort of living in a community of friends and dating this person who's just this nice addition to your life, you move slowly into, okay, now I spend a lot of my time with this person. That's great. And then suddenly you're, I mean, in my case, in a house with the person, with their son, who's nine, pregnant, hormonal, two big dogs, dirty house, It's like being thrown into this extreme, let's just say reality show, (laughs) you know? Um, And when you wake up in that place, you're asking yourself like, how, how much fear and panic and just self-loathing goes with this? How terrible am I at this? Am I terrible at it? Or is everyone bad at these things? I think the best thing that ever happened for my understanding of what relationships and what marriages even are was getting to know my friend who had a very solid, secure marriage that was also characterized by occasional screaming matches that they would laugh about. 
So they would tell me about their crazy fights that were not like, I'm leaving you forever or, you know, I'm sleeping with the mailman. But like, you know, the wheels come off while the kids, while they're on vacation with the kids. And, you know, there's not insulting. It's just like people are freaking out because things aren't going well. The first conversation I had with them, I was actually with this really bad boyfriend. And my, my friend said something like, oh, I had to call Carter at work because, you know, I was really upset. And I was like, you call him at work? I'm not allowed to call my boyfriend at work. And she was like, well, yeah, I mean, the Christmas tree fell over and the baby was crying. I said, you got to come home right now. <laughs> you got to come home right now. I can't handle this. And I just started crying. And I said, and what did he do? And she's like, he came home. He came home and helped me put the Christmas tree back up. And I was like, I cannot, I, I basically left their house, got on the phone and broke up with my boyfriend because <laughs> wow. I, I was like, this is what a real relationship is. Not that someone drops everything to help you, but that you can get your needs met somehow if you're really desperate, that you can be heard and that the shit hits the fan and you have to grapple with it together and you have to have a spirit of generosity in those moments. And I think, if anything, the idea of this book was to give that gift to other people. I think one of the, the reasons that your column is so beloved is that it acknowledges that for some of us, at least, like it can be difficult to do these things that are perceived as very easy and gauzy and normal, that like friendship can be fraught if we if we have like disagreeable personalities sometimes or if we're very specific about what we want and you hear some married people say like oh we never fight or you know like we've never had a fight in 30 years and I look at myself and I'm like there's no single person in the entire world I could be married to and never have a single fight (laughs) so what does a good marriage look like for me and so it is a gift to see how how conflict can fit into, you know, something that's often brushed under the rug is like marriage is work. But what does that mean? No one ever wants to talk about what the work part looks like. That's Um, right. So that was really beautiful. That's right. The thing is, if you want to be with someone who understands you, they have to have a few emotional things in common with you. And often the reason what gives someone an ability to understand you is they have similar flaws to your flaws. You know, some of their flaws line up with your flaws or some of their damage lines up with your damage or some of their childhood worries and fears line up with your childhood worries and fears. And so in the good times, that is such a comfort and so amazing. It's so good for having rich, layered conversations. There, you know, there are people you date that you cannot have the right conversations with because they don't have similar damage to you. They don't have similar issues and they're not obsessed with any of the same things. I wouldn't even call it obsessed. It's just like, there are people who move towards mutual understanding and there are people who move away from it. So if you want to be with someone who's attracted to big questions and likes to hash things out, Often this is a person who's been through a little bit or has some struggles in some area that maybe align with yours. If you choose someone with like that, in the hard times, you may be matching bombs going off at the same time, you know? And so navigating that is incredibly intense early on in your relationship. At the exact moment when you're feeling like, I am so angry And I know that he'll understand why I'm angry because this is obscene. This is absurd. The other person is, wow, why are you getting freaked out? I don't like to see someone get freaked out over things that are irrational. And so you have two bombs going off and now you've got to have a conversation about what's happening inside you while the other person tries to talk about what's happening inside them. And it's just difficult. It's difficult not to fall into situations where, you know, hey, look, I'm just trying to describe what's going on in here. Well, I'm just trying to describe what's going on in here. You know, it's like a fight that Bill and I have had a trillion times. (laughs) At some point, you do kind of get through it where you sort of say, oh, this is one of those. You know, we're just two bombs. Like, let's just back up. Think about it a little bit. Calm down. Monitoring your physical reaction to each other under duress is so important. And being able to talk about that 
I don't want to make us sound like hotheads. I just think that we, I mean, Bill and I are both hotheads at some level, but that doesn't mean we're yelling at each other all the time. It just means that we have the potential to rub each other the wrong way if both of our issues are being triggered at the same time, which I think is just, you know, a common thing among that people who are passionate about each very other. Very human. And I think that something that's, really beautiful about long-term partnership like I personally spent most of my 20s single in little situationships and I've now been with my boyfriend for three years that's obviously very short compared to 13 years but it is the first time that I'm really falling into a pattern with someone where I can feel the deepening of understanding each other and that includes the ways in which we, you know, our insecurities trigger each other. And there is a real beauty to that. And so I find it really interesting that we as a culture seem to want to sidestep that that is going to happen if you choose to engage in the experiment of long-term partnership. Yeah, that's beautifully said. I I would like you to be my spokesperson uh, (laughs) moving forward, please. You really captured it in a nutshell. It's sort of like, I don't know, why would I restate it? You said it perfectly. (laughs) Why wouldn't you want to understand how you set someone's insecurities into motion? Because every time you're in a situation where you're setting each other off, you actually have this opportunity to understand sort of your most basic needs as human beings. And you also have an opportunity to feel really close and passionate towards each other in a way that it's harder to feel about other people because you're bonded by this moment of extreme vulnerability and openness. The more that you build on these things, and, and you're absolutely right that it doesn't, you just don't have the opportunity to get into that space in one year relationships necessarily. I mean, with me, it was always, Year two was when everything went dark and turned <laughs> turned bad. It's like everyone stopped acting and started being real and then things fell apart in my old relationships. So it's funny because if you're really in love with someone and you know that you want to be with them for the rest of your life, or you're pretty sure you do, often you're getting married at the exact time when the wheels start coming off, you know, where, where you're just like, starting to see the naked truth about the other person and you're starting to see some of the things that you're going to have to grapple with even if you're at your best for the rest of your life that you're going to have to either accept or work around or talk through and and what models do we have of that in our lives you know what do we see on tv and in movies that shows us a map of how to proceed through these things. I mean, look, even in therapy, you can be in therapy for a while without knowing how therapy really works. It's a model of intimacy, right? Like you're supposed to be modeling, working through all of the noise and the madness of being a person in an intimate relationship with another person. So I guess what I'm trying to say is, it's amazing that that weird, rarefied almost space exists that we don't even understand it. And even when there are TV shows about therapy, it's like we don't have active working models in the culture of cobbling out a real intimate relationship that's sustainable, you know? It's amazing that we could walk around ingesting fantasies by choice. So part of the reaction to my book is just... The sound of people saying, I prefer to continue ingesting fantasies. I hate that you're doing this and it's gross. What you're doing is disgusting. You're disgusting. You've humiliated your husband. Incredibly, they don't care what my husband has to say about being so-called humiliated. (laughs) The existence of jokes is lost on them. It's just an evil woman ripping her poor, emasculated husband to shreds. (laughs) It's hilarious how resistant we are to to a slight change in protocol around relationships and around love. 
I think we yeah, do prefer to ingest fantasies. I love ingesting fantasies personally, <laughs> but not exclusively. I mean, that was when I finally watched the view segment before this just to prepare myself. And it was astonishing how many comments were like, well, yes, it's all true, but, you know, no one should ever say it. You know, it should always be kept unspoken. And why is it healthy for us to leave so many true things unspoken are we worried that women will just be scared out of marriage and then they won't do it anymore like what is at the core of that fear of telling the truth about parenting about marriage I actually feel like this process mostly breaks down in a very personal way it's sort of a deep level of internalized misogyny that sort of says Anything, any choices a woman makes that I wouldn't make or any choices a woman makes that would, in a man's case, that would make me feel small or would make her less attractive to me or would make her seem like less of just a receptacle for my ego. Any choice like that makes that woman horrifically disgusting to me. And the reason that I can't feel free is because I don't want to become a fucking disgusting whore like her. I mean, to put it in traditional terms, I am Virgin Mary-like. I am not a foul harlot who would rip her man to shreds, an emasculating harlot. I mean, that's an extreme part of it, but the less extreme things are, there's that movie called, it's called Red, Turning Red. I think of that and it's sort of like, ugh, talking about this stuff makes you disgusting. Narratives around this private truth are horrifically repulsive. It's like the the nature of being a, a female human should always be hidden. What couples share behind closed doors, what kind of madness lives between them is a secret that we're not supposed to be privy to. But there's a deeper kind of fear of intimacy in the picture, I think. There's a fear of women in general. There's an allergy to anything womanly that we share as a culture. And so to not point that out, to not, you know, laugh at it and also say something about how sad it is, is just to keep eating it forever. I mean, my position at this age is sort of like, any opportunity I can get to say, whoa, you know, it's still happening. You've ingested it all your life and you are just spreading shame on women who are free, essentially. And so my objective is definitely to say, Motherfucker, I'm free. Like, I don't don't know what you, what planet you're living on, but I feel good. Fuck off. There's, it's interesting that you're talking about this way because it's bringing to mind something that I always used to take away so much from your columns, which is the, the fear that we all have of being imperfect and being flawed in this very, like, optimization forward American culture. And after your book of Ask Polly came out, I actually interviewed you for HuffPost where I was working at the time. And I wrote about this because it struck me so strongly, like this pressure to like, be like Beyonce, you have just as many hours in the day. And like, you have to be this perfect specimen of womanhood. And the problem with intimacy is that you can't keep up your branding walls against someone who's that close to you all the time and so marriage is perfectly designed to disrupt this image of yourself as a perfect being and your partner's image of themselves as a perfect being that they are determined that other people see and so I think that then this mythos of like the marriage is this secret place where we can't reveal anything about the darker side of it is just part of the same obsession, which is like, okay, maybe someone will find out that we're not perfect, but no one will ever speak of it. Like it will (laughs) remain hidden and, and we can all continue to, we have the perfect marriage. I'm the perfect person. Like no one here is unoptimized in any way. Yeah. That's so smart. It's funny because 
I think that I have, am given such a free ride by Bill because he's very good about not ever hinting that I'm gross. And so <laughs> I think that I, you know, probably in part because of internalized misogyny, think of myself as disgusting. Like I think of myself as just at some level, a kind of beast that he has to tolerate, or at least I have on and off. But Bill is sort of, you know, if you, if you try to say to him, I'm a f disgusting beast, even if he's mad at me, he's like, no, no, you're beautiful. Are you kidding? Come here. You know, partially it's just bad eyesight, but it's like this amazing gift that, and you know, probably shows in my terrible ego that I walk around. And I walk around puffed up by my husband. It's not like he doesn't have a problem with me at different times, but I've been in relationships where I felt like, oh my God, like I'm so gross, you know? And the other person was like, yes, <laughs> yes, you are. The truth is all human beings are kind of gross. Bodies are weird. They do weird things. And as women, we are socialized to put so much labor into covering up any effort to like tame those messy things. And so there is something just fundamentally terrifying and so vulnerable about showing those things. And when you're around a person so often, like sleeping next to them, it, those things are going to come out. Well, my kid, one of my kids brought home a, a bug once that was like a get up in the middle of the night and you don't know what's happening and you crawl to the bathroom. And I didn't realize that it was one of those. And so I was just walking to the bathroom and then suddenly I started to feel faint. So the, my vision was getting darker and darker down to a, like a little, you know how that happens around the sides. I was just like, make it to the toilet. I collapsed onto the side of the bathtub and broke a rib and passed out. And Bill came in he heard this, oh, and he came in and he, I just, I came to looking down. This is disgusting. So anyone who hates disgusting things, I did not put the, the details of this in my book, but I, I came to while my husband was pulling me up out of a, like, imagine a poop emoji with oh, your no. underwear pinned underneath it. Oh, it was no. like a tower, a tower of poop, like a perfect pyramid of poop. And oh, I'm just no. like looking down, you know, weak, like sweating at this tower of poop, you know, and my husband is like charged with he's going to have to clean this up, right? Because I can barely function. He like slumped me onto the toilet. And I'm like, ugh, you know, like couldn't even raise my head. And, you know, once you've crossed that Rubicon, it, it's like you almost surrender to just, this is just how it's going to be, you know? Yeah. If, we, if we manage to pull this marriage off, one of us is going to be wiping the other's ass at some point. There's no <laughs> evading that, you know? You just, that's where you land. You know, terrible health things happen to people. And the things you have to endure when someone is sick, I mean, that was, that's our one terrible story so far. Luckily, there have not been a million other terrible things. But there's a way that when, once you decide, okay, we're just going to see horrific stuff and we're just going to be disgusting to each other sometimes. I don't know. I didn't mean to make that into a philosophical story. I just wanted to say <laughs> something gross, I guess. I mean, that's an incredible story, and it's a rite of passage, I think, in marriage, that moment when you realize, like, oh, any fantasy I had about maintaining the mystery of my femininity and my immortal womanhood within this marriage is just that that's destroyed. Like, he's seen it all. <laughs> that's um, right, but, you know... <laughs> wasn't strong I, enough to stop it. It's funny. I have this friend who once said to me, you know, I, I wear push-up bras because... I just like to, that's the kind of figure I like to, you know, give off in the world. And I was like, but what happens when a man um, sees you without your push-up bra? And she's like, oh, they don't care. They're just still living in the push-up bra world. Like they just, they're just like working with whatever visual you gave them. They're just going to stay inside that space. So 
there was something about learning that from her that sort of like changed my idea. It was sort of like, oh, you just kind of dress it up and and then they just erase all the other shit that you give them. As long as you're just like putting a fancy bow on it every now and then, they're just like, oh yeah, you're that, you're that woman in the lingerie from the other night. You know, like they can just stay in there. I think women struggle a little bit more with, you're the one who snores all night long. I mean, the thing is, okay, so fantasy is still important, right? Like it's still good for you and enjoyable and fun to have like a slightly gossamer effect or like beauty filter on your partner. I think for a woman, you almost have to kind of encourage it a little, like where you're like, oh yeah, look how good he looks. You have to sort of remind yourself to celebrate the sexy things about, uh, okay, I'm just turning into a Cosmo piece now. We can, <laughs> we can just hit pause on that. But I do think that fantasy does have a place in it. It's not all just like, let's work through our issues every day, right? I mean, you walk this line between trying not to see too much of the things that you don't want to see and trying to highlight the things that you love. I mean, you're working together at staying attached and staying, you know, fruitful and passionate and enjoying each other. And so you have a shared project of keeping each other foxy in each other's eyes, you know? <laughs> And I mean, it's helpful for us as people who are, as Claire said earlier, into that process to hear that it's possible to do both, that it's not just surrendering yourself to like, okay, now we will all agree that we're both disgusting all the time <laughs> and there will be no passion. And like, that's just what it is. What your book elucidates is that those things can coexist and that working on that project can also contain joy and titillation and all of these things that you might experience in the beginning stages of falling in love with someone, but just in a different form. That's right. I mean, to me, it's like if your personhood is intact, if you're exploring your desires and you understand your fantasies of yourself and you're indulging some of your vanities and you feel like a full, generative, exciting, creative force in the world, that brings so much energy to your connection. The more your self is fed, the more you feel excited to share it with another person. I mean, it's not that there aren't times in a relationship where you're like, I'm not fed. I feel like a cow and I feed this baby and I'm gross and you just need to cut a wide perimeter around me for a little bit. <laughs> you know, I think that part of having times when you just feel really turned on and excited by the world, that those times are sometimes fed by having the right to say, I just don't feel turned on by the world at all. And being able to work through those, being honest about your resistance to each other, I think it can be really useful. When Bill and I were trying to get pregnant with our second kid, I had this schedule for us, you know, it was like, we have to have sex every third day. I should have put this in the book, but there were times when we'd say, okay, it's the day this <laughs> we're supposed to make out now. You know, our first kid is in the crib. I'm like, all right, we got to do this. And I'd be like kind of stroking his hair. And I remember saying once, like, I have never wanted to have sex less in my life. <laughs> and he was like, oh, baby, you're really getting me hot. This is the perfect foreplay. But there's a way that if you can't break through that and laugh at yourselves, it's very difficult to show up, right? I mean, I know that other people have different kinds of relationships where they're like, look, I've, I've got to fuck every three days. Like, people have tricks for everything. There are people who live in a fantasy state, and that's cool. Just for me, it's like, if I can't say the thing that's blocking me, then I can't get there. I mean, you don't have to voice everything, but you know, sometimes it's a good way of shaking, shaking the bad shit loose so you can live in the moment. But again, I really do feel like the thing that people don't talk about that much as a marriage matures is the fact that if you feel like you can move through the world in the way that you want and you can 
show yourself confidently to the world as a mature woman and you can pursue your dreams and talk about your desires and show off sometimes and be vain and look good and look like a slob other times. If you feel free, the passion I don't think goes away. It's not like I order lingerie and put it on and make my husband a drink and seduce him. Like who has time? That's our kind of like messed up idea of like, you got to play this role in order to still be fucking your husband when you've been together for 20 years. It's just horseshit. It's like what makes you want to continue having sex with someone is being a person that's fucking living a good life, you know? And when two people feel good about their lives, they're thrilled to be together, you know, not constantly, yeah. just a There's lot. No- <laughs> And there's nothing less sexually exciting, really, than being like, I have to do a really good job at playing the role of someone who really wants to have sex right now and is sexy. And it's all just, I mean, that vision of like making a cocktail and seducing your husband is all just like rooted in this 1950s vision of like the professional housewife whose only job is to take care of the kids and then seduce her husband and People have been married for eons without conforming to that. So why are we so like beholden to that idea of what it is to have a sex life with your spouse? Being married is such a experience of having to work through and fail at different roles and then find your comfortable space within this weird traditional structure that maybe doesn't fit you that well. You're reinventing all these titles, mother, potentially wife, whatever that means, like you have to reinvent it for yourself or you're going to feel like you're trapped in someone else's idea of what a human should be. Mm -hmm. So many of these roles felt so kind of smothering to me that, and a lot of times my resistance to just being with my husband was a resistance to the wider culture's idea of how I should be. Luckily, he wasn't into the wider culture's view of what I should be. So I was able to emancipate myself from that. Later (laughs) in the book, you write about very honestly about developing a crush on a male writer and how you shared every detail of this crush with your husband. And I think all of us know that like having crushes is normal and healthy, but I think it's not something that we all would feel comfortable discussing with our partners. Is there value in having like certain unspeakable things in relationships or is avoiding that discomfort ultimately damaging? It depends on who you are, how you feel and what your particular circumstances are, I think. I mean, for me, I didn't think it was normal to have crushes at all when I developed a crush. I thought it was completely weird and fucked up. And my idea of it was, if I have a crush on someone, that means something's wrong with my marriage. There must be something wrong with my marriage. So for a while, it was sort of like, I was in this conversation where I was like, what's wrong with my marriage? Unfortunately, I was writing a book about my marriage while I was (laughs) asking myself what was wrong with my marriage. And it took a lot of weird conversations with Bill where I sort of felt guilty and stupid and where we would sort of break down together. What did this crush hold for me? Like, why was I continuing to build fantasies around this person in my spare time? And part of it, I mean, there's so many different layers to it. It's really interesting. It's sort of like, it offered all of these doorways into another life it offered this doorway into just having a separate realm that I could go to through hardship during the pandemic that didn't belong to him at all. It was sort of like, it became this sort of strange assertion of separateness, I think. And I mean, look, these are a lot of the reasons why people end up having affairs too, because they feel engulfed by their marriage. They feel like their identity is engulfed. They feel like they can't speak their needs out loud, they can't talk about their desires, that they are no longer a vibrant, interesting person out in the world. It's the opposite of what I was saying about what keeps your passion alive through years and years of marriage. And so there was a way that just 
talking about these taboo things when I was really the one who was the most grossed out and hating of all of this stuff. I was the one who was just, you know, really condemned myself for having these feelings at all, which, you know, as luckily I write an advice column. So I had to give myself advice and say like, no, how are you in control of these feelings? You just have a feeling and then you have to grapple with it. It's not your fault that you have a feeling. But then, you know, your obsessive mind latches onto a feeling and runs with it. So there were a lot of like, there were a lot of layers that we had to work through. But at the end of this tunnel, not only did I figure out like, oh, of course, I mean, from the beginning, I was sort of like, look, I'm going to have to tell you about this because I don't want to leave you for some random jackass that I barely know. You know, like that was the start of the conversation. It wasn't like, I'm going to leave you. I was just like, I have a sense that we should probably talk this through so it doesn't just warp inside my mind and lead me to do something insane. And then, you know, and then, and then slowly you sort of realize like there are benefits to being slightly outward and away from your coupledom at times. And there are things that are nice actually about just noticing that you're still attractive to people. I mean, I thought of myself for 10 years as just like this kind of ghoul I lived with this man who thought I was hot and the rest of the world, I was just an invisible or repulsive being. Um, and, I, and I was wrong, you know? I was misreading the way I was perceived because I perceived myself that way, right? I was projecting ghoul onto other people's faces everywhere I went. And so it was actually interesting and lively and wonderful to just feel like, oh, shit, I've still got it. And it hasn't left me, you know? It's sort of like, I feel like you reach this age where you're supposed to let go of all of this stuff. And in my life, it kind of feels like, I don't know, why let go of it? Why? What, why should I do that? I was saying to Claire earlier today, I was like, I don't, I don't want to fucking be invisible. I don't want to age <laughs> out of being seen and desired. That feels like such bullshit to especially to raise women with this obsession and understanding that like your primary value is your desirability is to be consumed. And then you reach a certain point and the world is like, no, fuck off with all of that. Like all that labor you put into it. No, we don't want it. Just go into your corner and kindly disappear and like wait to die. Like now <laughs> right. you're done. Or you're a tacky f freak. I mean, even just looking at the reaction to Madonna, I mean, Madonna, you know, who knows what's going on with Madonna, but like the self-righteousness with which people proclaim, this is how a 63 year old should look. It's like, that's just, you know, it's great. You're making your own choices and that's awesome. But like, shouldn't everyone just manage their own body and keep their hands to themselves? I mean, what, what the hell? It doesn't, I, I had, did this interview with Oldster and one of the questions was, what do you know you'll never do? You know, it was sort of looks wise. Like, it's sort of like a question that's sort of aimed at getting you to say, I will never go under the knife or do, you know, use Botox <laughs> or use fillers. And I absolutely draw the line as if it's this moral, you know, imperative to say no. And I mean, it's understandable that people view it that way because it is intense that like all the rich ladies get to look amazing and all the movie stars get to look amazing until they're literally dead. But the rest of us just have to cobble along looking worse and worse. <laughs> well, fuck it. I guess that's how it goes. It is like a Hunger Games reality at some level. And so it's totally understandable that people would place moral imperatives on it. What's interesting is people don't proselytize about the women who are pulling it off. You know, it's like, oh, we can see now that Madonna's not pulling it off. Fuck her. But it's like, uh, there are a lot of women past the age of 40 who look pretty goddamn good and don't seem to be shifting an inch away from looking like 25-year-olds. And we're not making comments about them because they just have really good plastic surgeons or whatever. Like, it's kind of weird that all this moralism bears down on the average lady, you know? It's, it's mm. horseshit. Why do we care what women do with themselves? It, and it's exactly as you say. 
you're supposed to be beautiful and receptive and delicious. It's going to run out fast. You better act on that shit while you have it. Because the second you have children, it's inappropriate to dress like you think you're hot. As a woman, people don't... Convincing people that you still have a good story to tell, that you're still an interesting human, that you have things to add to the culture. The craziness of it is that I've never been a better writer or a more interesting person than I am right now, but it feels almost like I have to choose carefully. I just have to get out of that mindset where I think I have to choose carefully. I actually just need to do mm. what the fuck I do and ignore everybody. <laughs> well, we are really grateful that you do what you do because it is refreshing. Like it makes me feel l less terrified about kind of looking out into the future and seeing like what our careers could look like. You know, we both were at HuffPost for 10 years and we started when we were in our very early 20s. And now we're in our early to mid 30s and we got laid off a year ago. And now we've been doing this thing and then suddenly like the world opened up in this crazy way and we simultaneously realized we are no longer the like young rising stars that has passed. There is a new generation of young writers and podcasters. And so where does that leave us? Do, do people still want to hear what we have to say? And so I personally feel grateful to the women that I see that are sort of occupying a space a little bit ahead of us and asserting that, yeah, there's still shit to learn and there's still stuff to say. And I just personally find your writing to be so beautiful and effective and moving. Wow, Emma, thank you. That's really nice. Um, I think that... Well, she's telling it like it is. I, I, you know, I, th I do think that that's a woman-specific thing. Because if you look at... If you look at the way men treat their careers, they're not constantly saying, will I still be relevant? They just mm. think of themselves as increasingly relevant <laughs> as they grow older. Yeah. I aspire to that attitude. It's, Imagine a man saying, wow. will I still be relevant when I'm 35? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Can't do and it. It's tied to the way we're treated around our looks, I think, too. Mm -hmm. You know, because a lot of the stuff that being treated like a young, exciting, up and coming writer is often somehow always linked to your looks a little bit, or people oh, find yeah. a way to sort of let it be known how you look in different situations. And you attract negativity if you look a certain way. And by that, I mean good. Like if you look good, you're going to get a lot of haters who come after you because you're an idiot because you look good. But also our internal ideas about what our value is and how we could maintain that value in the world and our relevance as humans. Like all of these things are trained into us around looks. And so when you have an outward facing media job, it's really vital to understand and make peace with that part of your life, the presentation part, because it affects everything. But the point is, it's hilarious to me to even hear like, at 35, will you still be relevant? Because I'm 51. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, yeah, wow, you guys, you know, like, yeah, you're for sure relevant. But I do understand like looking ahead and, you know, observing women who you feel like, are kind of a model of doing something that you could maybe pull off and, and other women who you're like, I just, I mean, and this gets dicey, right? Cause it goes back to what we were saying about how women look at other women and decide they're doing it wrong. Right? Like all of these weird prejudices and dumb ideas about how a woman <coughs> should be always come into it. And you shine all those things on yourself too, especially as you get older. One of the biggest, you know, challenges of getting older is just like, understanding how much noise you have in your head about what it means that you're now this other person, you know, and how are you going to move through the world as, you know, a 50 something? Like, what does that even look like? For me, I have a friend, she's in her 70s, and she just models freedom from conventional ideas about what is expected or what should be expected of a woman her age. And she sort of just is very free and moves through the world the way she wants to 
and looks fantastic and is just very graceful. And meeting her was kind of like of this amazing revelation to me. Yeah, I think we constantly yeah. do need to be reminded of our own freedom and also going back to just the thesis of your book, that that freedom can still be negotiated and found within the bounds of a healthy relationship and that that work is not always going to look beautiful or the way that, you know, the romantic narratives we were raised on told us it would. But if we choose to stick with it in a way that is healthy for us, like that can also be really beautiful. And we're just so grateful for you for taking the time to to chat with us and being so candid and thoughtful. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Emma and Clara. I really enjoyed talking to you. I, I enjoyed it a little too much, I'm going to say. <laughs> thank you so much. You're you're welcome. I'm, thank you for having me. It's been so fun talking to you. And I, I hope you'll have me back. And maybe next time I'll talk about some reality show that I've been assigned. Because as you know, I was a TV critic. We would honestly really love you to come back and talk about any TV show with us if you watch any shows in the reality romance space that's kind of our sweet spot so um please I need an excuse to force my kids to watch Love is Blind they've refused last time so go- oh it's so what? good it's, it's so deliciously good like what's wrong with them uh, oh I'm so in okay I mean I don't have to talk that much either I don't usually <laughs> I don't usually just ramble. I I was a little rambly because I like you guys so much. Thank you, you, Heather. We'll talk to you soon. We'll talk to you you soon and we'll definitely have you back. Thanks, Heather. Bye. You can find Heather's book Foreverland on the divine tedium of marriage wherever books are sold. Heather, thank you again for chatting with us. And that's it for this episode of Rich Text. Rich Text is hosted and produced by us and edited by Emma Gray. You can find the written version of Rich Text at clarinemma.substack.com, and you can also become a paid subscriber for so much more fun podcast content. You can find us on Instagram at clarinemmapod, and you can find our other podcasts, love to see it, over at Stitcher and wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us individually at Claire E. Fallon and at Emma Lady Rose. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.